0: With that introduction then, let's turn to Luke 7 and verse 11. Please give your attention again to the reading of God's holy word. These are the words of God, holy, inspired, and infallible. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea, and throughout all the region round about. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O holy God. What a wonderful text that shows forth the compassion of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you give your help to your servant who will now preach this word. For the depths of your mercy and the depths of your compassion cannot be communicated by a mere human instrument, but requires the very spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to it, to touch the hearts here, to convert those who have been hardened against the Lord. So would you work through the minister by your... Uh, by your spirit and may this same spirit work in every heart that will now hear this word preached. O oh, father, we pray that Jesus Christ and the esteem of him would increase in this congregation this day. And we pray father that we would glorify him for all of his tender mercies to us. Father, to that end. Now we pray that you would glorify thy son, Jesus, that thy son also may glorify thee. We ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. The 111th Psalm says this, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. That's a divine truth from the very word of God. Yet so often, friends, our our sinful suspicion is that he is not, especially whenever we mourn, whenever we grieve, We ask, especially as we know more and more of the Lord, it's an odd thing what happens. We ask, how can God, blessed forever, the divine being, really be merciful to me, a sinner? How can the Lord really know what my sorrows are like? He's unable to suffer himself. He is seated on his throne of glory, eternally blessed. And as we were in the Beatitudes, you remember what that means, boys and girls. It means he is eternally happy. He can never suffer. He can never experience sorrow. He has angels, that uh, the holy angels who, who serve him day and night. How can he know anything of grief? How can he know anything of sorrow? Beloved, the Son of God was incarnated that such thoughts should forever be eradicated from the hearts of God's people. And you see in this text and in so many places that the divine nature is reflected in Jesus Christ as God-man in our text, as he ministers to a widow and has compassion on her. When you see the the very mercies of God expressed in Jesus' compassion for her, And you're to take a text like this, and there are so many, aren't there, beloved, where we see the compassions of the Lord, and we are to always remember them. We are always to recall them, that God truly is merciful to us, and he shows it most, most of all in the God-man, Jesus Christ, that you might know that forever. And so with that very brief introduction to set our theme, our theme is God's mercy demonstrated in Christ's compassion. God's mercy demonstrated in Christ's compassion. And we will observe that from our text under three headings. First is to understand the widow's sorrow. Second is to observe Christ bearing her sorrow. And third is to look at the people's response that we would respond in kind. Well, verses 11 and 12 set our context. And it came to pass the day after, this is the day after the healing of the centurion servant, that he went into a city called Nain, And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. We'll leave it there. So the day after this healing of the centurion servant, he comes at the city. And uh, you can miss it, so read it carefully. There are two processions here, aren't there, people of God? At the city gate. They meet together at the city gate. Out of the city comes a procession of death. A dead man being carried, his grieving mother behind him, and a crowd of mourners following. And meeting that procession coming from the other side is another procession that comes. It is Jesus Christ, his disciples, and a great crowd following him. You literally have at the city gate life and death colliding. In Jesus was life, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1.4. And on the other side, death arrives in a coffin in an open casket. That's what beer means, uh, children, uh, with its attendant following after it. Death's attendant, which is grief, coming right behind. And, and so you have here a vivid collision of the life giving Savior and our great enemy, death. And it's as though the city gate is a boundary between life and death. And on that day, it was a, such a dramatic scene if we were there to see it. But I trust by the Spirit's help, you're seeing it yourself. Now the man in the coffin was young. You know, today we might say, here's a man who's in the prime of his life. Now you must not get past that, people of God. You must remember tomorrow is never guaranteed to any of us. We don't come into this world. Our birth certificate is not stamped with our expiration date. We never know when we will expire. And we often think of to ourselves, the Lord owes me at least 70, maybe 80, 90 years of life. And so we don't live as those who must ever be ready to meet our maker at any time. Rather than live as though this very hour our soul might be required of us. Friend, uh, as we consider this young man, live as though God might call you to give an account of yourself today. Live. Live dependent on Jesus. First, you must know him as your Savior so that you know that when you come to heaven, to the presence of God, that he will bring you in knowing that you know the Savior. But after that, beloved believers, you must keep short accounts with God as Paul did. And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and towards men. Acts 24.16. This is the way the Christian lives in view of eternity, friends. Always striving to exercise themselves, to always keep their conscience clear, void of offense towards God and fellow man. Such that, I pray you can say this, beloved, that if you were struck ill today or maybe struck on the road out there and your life was ebbing away, you would say with great confidence, I will soon be in the arms of Jesus Christ. And not fear at all. That you would say, as for me, as your life is ebbing, I I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Psalm 1715. But that, as a bit of an aside, but an important one, let's now consider his mother. The young man who had passed his mother. And let's understand her great grief. Let's not read over this text too quickly. For the Spirit wants us to meditate on such things. She had lost her husband not too long ago, as you very well know, because her dead son here is called Young. She had taken a great blow, beloved. She had lost, you think of what marriage is. She had lost the one that God had made one flesh with her. Married persons, I suspect here, if you've ever thought of this, we dread this kind of sorrow. Because it will feel as though God has ripped our soul asunder. He does a work in marriage to make us one. And so she had lost her husband and now added to the blow of losing her husband. Another one comes so soon after. The loss of her only son. And the grief of losing a child in your child's youth is a profound sorrow. You know, even, even in the pagans, right, they say um, no parent should have to bury their child, right? And uh, God willing, I pray that my children will die after me and I will not have to experience that myself. What a great grief this is for any mother, but even more so for one who has lost her husband. This woman had taken two great blows in her life in such a short space of time. Perhaps not even having time to cope with the loss of her husband. And now this on top of it. And in that time, you know this well, there's no financial safety net in the government. Nobody is there to to care for her unless family takes her in. And so financially now she has no man to care for her. And she is in a very uncertain place for her future. You might have even seen, okay, my husband has died, but I have my son, my only son. He will care for me now But even that support was ripped away from her, and her position is very precarious and uncertain. And we hear that there is a crowd of mourners that followed her that day. But we know what this is like if we've ever grieved, right? They would soon be gone, and they would go back to their own lives. And boys and girls, what adds to this, in in those days, mourners were hired for funerals. So not all of these here were friends and family that cared for her. And so after her son was buried, the mourners would go away, and she would be left all alone. And so she is a woman full of grief and loss with an uncertain life ahead of her. Now, we receive hard providences like this, and our sinful inclination, believers, is to believe that God is utterly against us. The the temptation, the sinful temptation comes. Why has the Almighty taken his hand and struck me so severely? Why is the Almighty so unfeeling, so uncaring, and so dispassionate? He has told me that all things work for my good if I love God. But it does not seem that way at all. He seems to only deal very bitterly with me. What did Naomi say when she lost her husband and her sons? Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. Why? For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. That is what we can sense, and that is what we might feel against our God. Our temptation is to believe that God is against us in our grief. Now, all that said, for the judgment of charity, we don't see that this widow has expressed any bitterness, though she has grief. So the judgment of charity is to believe that her reaction was maybe more like Job's, and this is the way to go, friends. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 121. But we must ask, because we don't diagnose the problem, what is at the root of all grief, right? Why does death come to us at all? Until you understand this, friends, you won't understand why Jesus is here. The root of our sin, root of our grief, and the root of death is sin, friends. And that should make us mourn all the more. Because of the first Adam's sin, in Romans 5.12 we hear, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You remember that God promised to Adam, On the day that you eat that fruit, you will surely die. And so all die, including this young man. Why? Because of Adam's first transgression. All of us are made sinners. Even babies die. You know, you ask the question, why does a baby die? It is because Adam's fall made every human being liable to the curse, which is death. And for all of us here, our sins, our own sins, our personal sins compound this. What do we read? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so, yes, it is proper to mourn death, but we have to properly mourn death. To not just mourn the loss of a person, but also to mourn that our sin has brought death into the world. We will not mourn as God wants us to mourn. We will not mourn as Jesus mourned in front of Lazarus' tomb. Until, beloved, we see that sin has caused all this misery. The great tragedy is not really that we die. But that our sin against God brought death as a curse and plague on the world. That even even the creatures of this world die. Why? Because of our sin. Why do little animals die? Because of our sin. Why does the creation groan? It is because of our sin. And until we come to grips with that, we will never cast ourselves on Jesus Christ. He who has the keys of hell and death. Children, boys and girls, I want to address you for a moment here as you watch this woman cry for her son. That's a terrible grief to lose a child like this. But uh, boys and girls, how much more, how much more will the grief of your parents be if you died in unbelief? If there is, the Bible says, no greater joy than to see my children walk in truth. There is no greater grief, beloved, for godly ones than to see their children die apart from Christ. Do not think, and this is something for you growing up in the church, do not think that living a moral life is enough, boys and girls, or a so-called moral life. Do not think that, you know, and these are things that are good, right? Being chased until marriage, having a good job, never doing drugs. None of that will actually save you. Those things are good but your parents will still weep bitterly if you never closed with Christ. If you never took him for yourself, if you never said never said before God and man, I take Christ to be mine. I believe in him. I trust in him as my savior. I trust him with my very soul. They want you to say, well God wants you to say more than that and your your parents will cheer at this that uh, you say he is my savior. That he is my Lord. I despise my sin and I adore my Savior. That is what they want from you, boys and girls. And anything less than that will cause them grief. It will cause them to mourn bitterly. Weep more bitterly than this widow did. So receive Christ, all of you. Repent of your sin. And what does the Bible say? Not only will you bring joy to your parents, but you bring joy to heaven itself. For heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and turns to the Lord. Well, I trust then, and we don't have time to meditate on all of this, but I trust you see and get a taste of the the heavy sorrow laid on this pitiable woman. So let's now look to Christ in our second heading, which is Christ bearing her sorrow. Verse 13 captures our Lord's reaction to her. And When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. The... Greek root of the word translated compassion sounds like this, it is this, Sploch nizomai, Splak nizomai. Uh, And boys and girls, what I want to do there, and I don't usually go into the Greek that much, but what I want you to think on this is this, that the sound of a word often reflects its sense. That's why the word feather sounds softer than rock, right? And why cacophony sounds harsher than its antonym, which is harmony. Right? There is something of the sound of the word that reflects its root meaning. So if you, you don't need to know what the Greek sense is of splaknizomai in order to get a sense of the sound here. But listen to the sound of it and think of what it means. It means being deeply moved, being hurt in our bowels, our inmost parts, being moved with pity and mercy over somebody else's plight especially. And I suspect if especially you've been born again, you have felt this for others in their time of need. It's as though your bowels, right? That's why it's translated that way often in the King James. In King James, Colossians 3.12, it translates it as bowels of mercy. That's why it feels like even your bowels, maybe your stomach is churning at the sight of something pitiable. And so what we see here is that the Lord's inmost being was moved with compassion For the widow, it's as though his heart and his stomach and his inmost parts were moved when he saw her. How your Savior reveals God to you, who says in all their afflictions he was afflicted, Isaiah 63, 9. But friends, in Isaiah, for centuries the people of God might have asked, how can that be? How could it possibly be that God is afflicted? Because God cannot be afflicted by anything. As I've said already, he is eternally blessed. He is unchangeably happy. Nothing can take that happiness away or else he would cease to be God. Or maybe they thought, well, maybe this is hyperbole that he was afflicted. Or maybe it's a mere anthropopathism, which means that it is using human passions to communicate some truth about God, that if God could be afflicted, he would be afflicted for us and communicates how much he cares for us. But really, Isaiah 63 9 is in the fullness of time, resolved in Romans 9 5. Concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is God over all, uh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Eternally blessed God, right? God blessed forever. In the flesh comes in Jesus Christ. To become who? The man of sorrows who is acquainted with what? Grief. Isaiah 53 3. To be our sinless Savior who came to be afflicted, not for his afflictions, right, but ours, so that we might understand in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. For all of our sinfulness, he was afflicted himself, something God could never do in the divine nature. Ephesians 2.4 says, God is rich in mercy and has a great love for his elect. And what you are seeing in Jesus Christ is divine mercy shining forth through his humanity. God's tender mercies are expressed in Jesus's humanity in a way the divine can never express. You see that in Jesus, right? His humanity weeps for us. His soul and body tremble with compassion for us. And the unity of his person is so great. And I've talked about this many times before, so I'm not going to continue to develop this out in this sermon. But the unity of his person is so great that when Jesus shows forth this movement, this compassion in his bowels, as when Jesus wets his face with his tears at Lazarus's graveside, they are counted as the bowels of God. They are counted as the tears of God. His singular person, the God-man, shows divine mercy in humanity in a way divinity never could. And that's why in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have a mediator, friends, believer, who feels our infirmities and is touched by them. Which is why, In God's infinite wisdom and goodness that we would know more of God, he gave us the God-man so that he can show his divine mercy as compassion and be touched by a feeling of our infirmities. Jesus truly reveals and expresses the mercies of God to this widow in a tangible way. This is why he told Philip, and he was grieved, he said, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And you have seen him in a way you would never see otherwise because as a creature, you need to see me through humanity to understand me. And so this is the condescension and goodness of God who expresses himself through the humanity of Jesus. So a God who cannot weep could count Christ's tears as his tears over our misery. So a God that cannot die would count Christ's death his own for our sake so that in all our afflictions he was afflicted. And the more, beloved, that you know these two natures of Christ and his one singular person as the Son of God, the more you will know God himself. And that is God's intention to know him more through Jesus in a way we finite and mutable creatures could understand. Because as I said in the introduction, our suspicion when it comes to God is always this, how can God know? How can a God who never feels grief and in no way suffer, understand what I suffer? How can he understand sorrow? But beloved, look to Jesus, the God-man, and banish those thoughts forever. See as well that Jesus is moved by the death of his people. You see it here. You see it with Lazarus too. And when you understand how much he hates sin, and yet at the same time he loves his people, You understand why he weeps. He weeps that his people are sinners and that this death is the just reward for sin. But see, the thing is, as as we remember things like the hundred and third Psalm, he pities us as a father pities his children, doesn't he? Uh, He hates what sin has made of us. He hates sin and the effect of it in his people. Though we deserve it, yes. He comes to us because he loves us and he comes to taste death himself to destroy death's power over his beloved people. You remember that in our series in Hebrews, the second chapter? For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, his death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through his own death, he has come to destroy the power of death. Through his own death, he would take the sting of sin into his own bosom so that he would fulfill his promise to us that he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. To which we say, praise God. Amen. John 11, 25 through 26. But now, as we understand a bit more of his work, let's return to the widow. And Jesus was especially moved at her pitiable plight. You know, he demonstrates again another part of the character of God that we might have never have thought was maybe hyperbole, which is a sinful thought. Because God has long told us, such as in Psalm 68, 5 through 6, he says that he is a father of the fatherless and a judge or defender of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. In the Old Testament, the Lord has said over and over again to his people, care for the widows and the orphans, because it is in my nature to love them and care for them. He says, I will take them in, as we sang just now before the sermon. And again, maybe our suspicion is God is is so high and exalted, sitting on his holy throne in light unapproachable. And we ask, could he truly care about widows and orphans? Because the great men of this world never do. And beloved, when God incarnate comes, what is the answer? The answer is yes, he does care. Yes, he does love them. And we are so sinful, he shows us to have ever doubted him at his word. What we see in Jesus Christ really, and I I, I mentioned this when we saw the incarnation earlier in Luke, is you see the personality of God in a man. And you see how he expresses his mercy and, uh, and love through these bowels of mercy, his inmost being moved by this widow's grief and plight. And so if you are a widow... Or you will be one day, as many women will be. Know that God cannot lie. And Jesus shows he cares for them. But we can't move past this then without taking that to heart ourselves. What has the Lord said time and time again about widows? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in what? Their affliction. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. uh, James, rather, 127. We are each of us. This is true, pure religion, beloved. To care for the fatherless and widows. And what do you find, right? And you think about this. We know all of our theology, if you put it all together. Who is the epitome of true religion? Jesus Christ. And here is true religion in the flesh. And what is he doing? He is visiting the fatherless and widows in their affliction for he himself expresses the will of God. And because he expresses the will of God and embodies true religion, all of us who believe on him are saved as that righteousness comes to us. But being united to him by saving faith, we ourselves must care for widows and orphans. Well, child of God, just a broader thing, and we're going to see this as we continue our time in Luke. Every time Jesus Christ has compassion, take note. And as you do, let each occasion become a token to you of God's truth, that though we are sinners, though we deserve nothing but wrath, to his people he is infinitely merciful. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame. Think of this, right? Think of these truths. The the people of God once sang this without it being a new song as it is to us now. They sang this and they they were thinking of the divine nature. But now think of the God-man as you think of Psalm 103. For he knoweth our frame. He knows what we are and he knows what we are in Christ. He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as a grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it and it is gone and the place thereof shall it know no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. Can we who deserve nothing but God's wrath ask for anything more than that? Than to know God so merciful and so pitiable towards his elect. Now with all that understanding, then you understand Jesus's words and works. He tells this widow what? Weep not. Weep not. Now you have to understand what he's saying here. He's not saying chin up. Right. He's not saying buck up. God loves you. Why cry? Right. You know God loves you. Don't cry. No. His word says Christians do sorrow death, but not as those without hope. First Thessalonians 4.13 He tells her, Weep not. Why? Because he is about to wipe her tears away. That's why he says, Weep not. Friends, what we want to know about our Jesus is he is not only the embodiment of the mercies of God, he is also the embodiment of the power of God that is exercised from mercy. You know, it's a wonderful thing that our Savior is compassionate, but that wouldn't be enough, now, would it? It wouldn't be enough. It's not enough that he is a sympathetic ear. We need more than that. We need divine power to deal with what we deal with, especially our sinfulness. But he shows us here that his feeling of our infirmities is not just feeling, right? It's not just feeling. It causes him to arise for our sakes and exercise his almighty power for us. Verse 14, he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. What a wonderful text that is. He comes to touch the coffin. Now, he doesn't touch the body. He touches the coffin. So the ceremonial law of Numbers 19 against touching a corpse does not apply. He touches the coffin not because he needs to touch it to do the miracle. We saw that with the centurion servant. He can do his miracles at a distance. No, he touches it. Why? To arrest those who were carrying it. When he touches it, it says, They that bear him stood still. You almost, I was thinking of this. It's almost like you remember Psalm 46, verse 10, right? Be still and know that I am God. And that's what you're about to see. Because what truly happens next fills everyone with fear and the glory of God. He gave a word to a dead man. Young man, I say unto thee, arise. And straight away, he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And this distinguishes Jesus from all the prophets of old. He does not pray to God that God would raise this man. He doesn't do anything but exercise his own authority and power. And the very power that created the cosmos with the word of power is exercised in Jesus to bring the dead to life. And you see that same power in John eleven forty three 43, when he tells Lazarus what? Lazarus, come forth. He gives the dead a command. And this is what is astonishing. He is speaking to deaf ears. These ears cannot hear anything. And he gives them life that they would obey his word. And that is astonishing power that is found in the God-man. And so we find that this theme that has been woven from the end of uh, Luke chapter 6 When we saw the Sermon on the Plain where he said of his lordship, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? That is then taken into the first part of Luke 7 where we see the authority of Jesus acknowledged by the centurion now comes to its fruition here. Where we see that this man has power even over death. He says come to a dead body and even the dead bodies come to him. And what we must remember before we move on from this is that all men are dead spiritually. All men are dead spiritually. Dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And so all of us need not just to be raised on the last day bodily, but we all of us in this life need to be raised spiritually because we're all dead to God. And, And we are all great sinners who hate His voice. But God... Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, what? Hath quickened or given us life together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. This is what the gospel does. This is what the proclamation of the gospel does, is when the Lord Jesus Christ says, arise, arise. To those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Though dead, they come to life spiritually. Once they hated God, and it's as though a, a switch has flipped, and they now love and adore Jesus Christ, and they cast themselves on him for forgiveness of sins. And they see in truth that they are great sinners, but that Jesus Christ has come for sinners, even the chief. And in a word, they are taken from death to life. How does this happen? Just as Jesus did then by speaking his living word, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by what? The word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. First Peter one twenty three. Uh, not in the habit of speaking of, of my testimony, but I was just thinking about this and how vivid it was for me. And now everyone's conversion is different. And, and young boys and girls... Uh, You have grown up in the church, and you you likely don't even know the day you were converted. Maybe you were converted uh, when you were in the womb, as John the Baptist is, and we'll speak of that this afternoon. But I remember one day, 13 years ago, as an atheist, sitting in a meeting hall in California, dead in my sins and trespasses. But by the word of Christ's power, I heard of a God who had loved me from before the world began. And he spoke by the scripture, not in these words necessarily, but the sense is the same. He said, arise. Arise, be reconciled to God. And my soul, which was once dead, was given life. And I was raised to newness of life. And I was put to death on that cross. I was crucified with Christ, truly. And my old life was put away. And as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, And I would say now that the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Bible says this grace is irresistible, just as it was for this dead man in the casket. He could not argue with the Lord. There was nothing he could do but respond to God in Jesus Christ who said, arise. If you do not yet believe, may this word today cause you to arise from spiritual death. Arise to newness of life from your sins and trespasses. I pray that the spirit would blow this word upon your soul as he did to those dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and link them to this man. O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with sin and put breath in you that ye shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And that is exactly what happened to this man. He lived. But for all of us who are dead in our sins, we are hearing a call to come to life in Christ this day. Jesus is calling the spiritually dead to live. Hear him and live. Believe on him. Do not perish in eternal death, which is the wages of sin. Hear him and live. And that you would know that Jesus is no charlatan. The gospel shows us this man arises. And he begins to speak before many witnesses, showing you this is no parlor trick. This is no stunt That was coordinated. Jesus truly, boys and girls, has the power to raise men from death to life. And he immediately began to speak. Now, we don't know. The words are not recorded by Luke. And it was actually kind of interesting. I think of Luke. Here's the great physician. right? Or here's the physician testifying of the great physician. He knows when that body is dead. (laughs) And he knows here, here's a man who has come to life. But anyhow, what were the first words? I don't know. But I think it is suitable that they were praised to our God. As the bystanders, you're glorified God. And that is our proper response if Jesus Christ has, has caused us to come from death to life. If we are born again from above, if we have saving faith, our proper response, beloved, if we are taken from death to life, is eternal praise to God. And just consider the grace of the Lord in his very next action. And uh, we read things too quickly. I've been convicted of that. Verse 15 says, And he, that is Jesus, delivered him to his mother. The sense of the Greek word delivered is that of giving a gift. This is grace, undeserved grace. And that's what the compassion and works of the Lord are to all of us. It is mere grace, a gift, unearned, undeserved. The widow had nothing to give Jesus. He gives her an unmerited gift of her son returned to her. And that is what our salvation and our eventual resurrection believers is. A gift from God to undeserving sinners. Not even her tears earned this gift. It was just mercy alone. He did not, in other words, then do this miracle just to show off friends. Yes, he manifested his glory and he deserves it. But he truly is showing compassion. He delivered the man to his mother returning to her what sin and death had taken away, to show us that scripture is true, that he has borne our sorrows. This is our God, this is our Savior, and this is our Lord. Praise the Lord for it. And for you, believer, then, this text also serves as a token of Christ's promise of a resurrection on the last day. What do we hear of it in First Thessalonians four sixteen through 18? For the Lord himself, right? Our Lord Jesus is now in heaven. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And the Greek there is command. Here is a word of command. With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Our text shows us that Christ has the power to command you out of the grave on the last day. Let us never forget, beloved, because this is unlikely to be the generation where the Lord will return. Let us remember, beloved, that one day we will all be in a coffin. Each and every one of us will be in a coffin one day, our bodies dead and lifeless. If you believe in Jesus, your, yes, your soul Your soul will be in the paradise of God as that thief on the cross was and your soul will rest in the Lord above. But on the last day, believer, your dead body will hear the Lord shout arise and your body will be raised again to immortal life and your soul will be compelled to join it. And this is what is so beautiful about the resurrection day. We will meet the Lord, body and soul, and we will ever be the Lord's. And what is the use of this Doctrine. Comfort one another with these words. In our grief, we remember the resurrection day, especially on the first day of the week when Christ was raised. It was the last time you, when you needed comfort, you've turned to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and found comfort there. That one day I will be with the Lord forever, not just my soul, not just my body, but body and soul. I will ever be the Lord's. And you need to remind each other, He will tell us to arise, but he will not deliver us to our mother. He will deliver us to our father in heaven. And we will ever be with him forever. And our physical mouths on that day will open. And what will we do? Praise unto our God. Worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor and praise. Jesus himself would have to die for this, friends that we would have this blessing. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. For if the first Adam brought death, Jesus, the last Adam, brought life. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Romans 5 verse 18. And that's the parallel, right? We cry because Adam brought death. We comfort one another because Jesus has brought us eternal life. Having to die for it, for us in our place. So how can you have this resurrection of life? I'll return back to John 11. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. What was the very next thing he asked? Believest thou this? Do you believe this? Can each and every one of you say, I believe this? I believe in Jesus Christ. And because of that, I will truly never die. Even the day when my, my breath leaves my body, my soul is united with Christ above. And I truly don't ever die then. Though my body re- remains in the grave for a while. Can you say before God as your witness, you believe this? You must. Otherwise, I want to warn you of your fate on the last day because there is a resurrection of those who do not believe and listen to what it is. John 5, through 29, Marvel not at this for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave, see, all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. You will be raised Unbeliever, but to a resurrection of damnation, body and soul tormented eternally in the lake that is called fire. Why die when you can live forever, friends? Again, this is a gift from God. Hear Christ, receive him, and live. Well, at the city gates, the life in Christ overcame the death of the young man. He bore the widow's sorrow and gifted her son back to her. In an instant... In an instant, you think of this. All that wailing, all that mourning, all that grieving was turned to fear and awe and glory to God. So let's conclude, and this will be a brief, the people's response. Verse 16. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. Great fear comes on all, This is what happens when God visits us and exercises his power. Reverent fear and glory to God result from it. Whenever we see then, friends, a soul translated from death to life, whenever one is converted to the Lord, a reverent fear must come over us all. For we must recognize that God has visited his people. God, the Holy Spirit in our time, does this work of bringing life to dead souls in our midst. We fear because this is not the power of man. This is not the persuasion of the minister or the friend who opens the scripture and shares Christ with you. This is the power of God. And we have too low a view of what happens in conversion. Every time we worship, every time we think on the gospel itself, we should have a reverent fear that the resurrection of damnation was my well-earned reward. But in Jesus Christ, I am given life everlasting. That is your cause and mine too to rejoice with fear and trembling. What a thing that the fear of God is missing in so many assemblies today. Our faith is a weighty faith. Every Lord's Day, life and death is held out before us. Our faith requires, beloved, it requires the death of the Son of God. These are weighty things. These are things that we tremble at. Our faith is joyful, yes, but it has gravity to it. It deals with the glorious God. And on that day, the people recognized God had visited them in Jesus. Because that is who Jesus is. God in the flesh. And they also recognized a great prophet is risen among them. They know that Jesus is the one Moses prophesied of. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken, Deuteronomy 18.15. Yes, a prophet, but more, more than a prophet, God has visited us in the flesh. But what is remarkable, right, is this visitation from God, which was prophesied in Deuteronomy eighteen and also seen here in the gospel, is to recognize that a great prophet has what? Risen from among us, or out of our own. That this Jesus, God-man, is one of us. To have a fellow feeling of us. That's all throughout our text. I've already covered it. But Hebrews 2.11, For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God in the flesh, to be unashamed to call us brethren. I preached on that a while ago in Hebrews. What a God that is when we consider who we are. And so we must find reverence and awe for such a God, to give glory to God for coming down in Jesus. Now time has quickly gone away. So I want to return to the widow's prior sorrow. Her sorrows were ended for this time. Uh, Her sorrows had turned to great joy. But let's think on her sorrow once one more time. Because maybe the thought of a child passing away earlier in the sermon gripped you with grief. Again, such a grief that I pray I will never experience it myself, though if he does, blessed be the name of the Lord. But many of us, many of the godly have a, a sense of trepidation and fear, and we think, or maybe we have even lost a child, and we think of this grief. But the Bible says the thought of that grief has a greater purpose, beloved. You're to consider the death of Jesus. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth what? For his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, 10 through 11. Connect that to this text as you see the great crowd of mourners and you see this widow who's crying because her only son is gone. And so, believer, when you think of the grief of this woman, You must transfer your grief to your sin that put your Savior on the cross. And you must weep that your sin killed Christ as though you have lost your only son. That is the kind of bitterness our sin is meant to produce in us, friends. To see that our sin crucified Christ, blessed God forever, bearing our sins. If we would just take the sorrow this woman felt in that procession, if we would feel it over our own sin, how bitter sin would be to us. How little we would play with sin and how much more we would love Jesus and how we would glorify God that he gave what his only begotten son to die for our sin. And now you know why? Because the Lord is full of tender mercies. And so he has sent the only one who has the power to bear our sin under God's wrath, so that one day he could say to his beloved, Arise, enter into the glory of thy Lord. And so, to behold Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, then beloved, is never to doubt the mercies of God for us, even sinners. Believe on him, and you will never die, but you will live forever with the Lord. And praise God for it. Amen. We will continue next week, Lord willing, but until then, please rise for prayer, if able. Oh, our Father and our God, in the preaching of the word, you have once again set life and death before us. Would you have every soul here choose life, Father? Would you have them choose Christ? They cannot do it themselves, as we have heard from Ezekiel thirty-seven. As we have seen, we are outside of Christ, as this dead boy on the the funeral uh, uh, procession uh, on that uh, on that bier. Father, we are all like that. So give divine power from above, cause your Spirit to blow on every dead soul here, that they would take hold of Jesus Christ as He takes hold of them. Help every soul here be still. And know that you are God. May we all, Father, then, be blessed in the knowledge of our life-giving Savior. Give us more life where there is death in our souls today. We pray that you would help us give glory to, to you, Father, for giving us your only begotten Son. That one day, Father, you would wipe away all of our tears. That you will say on that last great day, weep not. For the time of tears is over. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. We anticipate that day and even so say, Come, come Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.